on through John's gospel as we start into chapter 6. And, and if you've been around the church or Christianity or Jesus for a while, you're probably pretty familiar with this passage. You've probably heard the story, and it might be one that actually we're a little bit too familiar with. Sometimes when we, when we know a story well, uh, it, we don't really dig into it when we hear it anymore. We just sort of hear the, the opening verses and, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what's going to happen. I know what Jesus is going to do. Let's move on sort of thing. But I, I want us to, to actually dig into these first few verses of chapter 6 uh, again because we don't want them to become that familiar. Just before we do, though, a quick reminder of where we've come from. Uh, last week, we looked at most of chapter 5. Uh, we looked at verses 18 through 47. We flew through it. There was a lot there. We hit some high points. But in that passage, we saw Jesus was clearly making himself and presenting himself as one who is equal with God. And he did this in three ways that we highlighted. He, he said that, that he was doing things that only God could do. Remember, he said, hey, I see my father working, so I'm going to work on the Sabbath too. Because God can work on the Sabbath, I'm allowed to work on the Sabbath. He's saying, I am God. He also was accepting the, the glory and the honor that only God was due. And we looked back in the Old Testament, we, we saw that, that God was very clear that he is jealous for his own name, jealous for the glory and the honor that he is due. The thing that, that we should be recognizing that God can do, only God can do, and only God should get that credit. And when we say God is jealous, this is not the, the envious, I'm jealous of my neighbor's new kitchen or new car or whatever else, but this is a true, God deserves this honor, and so he ought to get it. This is the, the good side of jealousy. And Jesus also claimed to have power that only God had. He talked about judgment. He talked about raising people from the dead. And so he was really clearly making himself equal with God. And then the second half of those verses we looked at, Jesus listed four witnesses that were backing up his claims. Again, lots of people walk around saying all sorts of things, but they can't really back it up. And remember, it's really important to know and to, to recognize that Jesus was building his case in the midst of the religious leaders of the day. He wasn't just talking, he wasn't off somewhere else talking to some foreigners and saying, hey, let me convince you of this foreign religion. He wasn't just talking to his disciples who had maybe already sort of bought into who he might be. He wasn't off talking to some, some uneducated people that might be easily swayed to believe the next thing. But he was building this case in front of some of the most learned, well-studied Jewish scholars of the time. Do you remember the witnesses he presented? There were four. First was John the Baptist. Then was Jesus' own works. Then the scriptures, our Old Testament, he said, points to me. And then finally, God himself. That's a pretty good witness list. And so we were left with the question, well, will we obey? Jesus put together for us a strong case for his authority, for his equality with God, that he was in fact God. And so what we can't do is just respond with, well, that's nice, Jesus. Or I, I respect that, Jesus. Either we can accept Jesus' claims or we reject him. That's the only two choices. There's no middle ground. To do anything less than accept Jesus' claims is to reject him. What we didn't look at last week and what really shapes this week's uh, verses and the, kind of the rest of the Gospel of John 2 is the last few verses in chapter 5. They, they fit in with what we did talk about, but we want to look a little bit closer at them as we sort of step into this morning. 
Remember, Jesus had said to, the, to the, the Pharisees, to the religious leaders that were there, listen, you're searching the scriptures. You're studying the Old Testament hard. You're looking for the Messiah to come, but you've missed that I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. You, you study all these things, but you've, you've missed the truth. You've missed that I'm the one that brings the life you look for in those scriptures. And then in verses 42 to 44, he kind of hauntingly says to these religious leaders, you honor each other, but you don't care to honor uh, the one that comes from God himself. He's saying, listen, you care so much about your religion and your laws and making sure you've crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's that you're actually worshiping the wrong thing. And then kind of the final exclamation point in verse 45, he says, it's, it's not I who's going to accuse you before the Father. Remember, Jesus just said, I have the right to judge. But he says, listen, Actually, Moses is going to accuse you. Moses, in whom you put your hopes. That's, that's a big shot. Moses will accuse them. The law will accuse them and show them that they've been wrong, that they've, they've made mistakes. These were the cornerstones of Jewish life and religion and community and faith. Moses was the hero, if I can use that word, of the Jews. Moses was the one that, that led them out of Egypt Moses was the first governor, the first leader of their nation as he led them out of Egypt towards the promised land. Moses was the one that went up on the mountain to meet with God and get the Ten Commandments for them. Now, why is it so important that we read this, that we understand this before we jump into chapter 6? Here's the thing. We need to remember that the Bible wasn't written to us. Maybe that seems obvious. Maybe you're squirming in your, your seat a little bit as I say that, but hear me out. Who was John's original audience? I can tell you, John was not writing initially to the church gathered online in 2021 in the Bow Valley and across the world. Of course, 100% the Bible speaks to us today. Absolutely it does. But there is significant danger in us taking our current context, reading the Bible, and then trying to squish the two worlds together. And what's worse is when we try to do that, we often miss what the Bible is really trying to say and sometimes grossly misinterpret what the authors intended us to know because we don't look at, we don't understand the original setting of the text. And so maybe this is especially true when we read the Gospels because without understanding who Jesus is in his setting, we can miss some of the core implications, and some of the real deep roots of the message of the gospel itself. As one writer says, we have to do the work of locating Jesus in his setting so that we don't make the mistake of adapting him to our setting. See, Jesus was not a 21st century, middle-class, white North American. Nor was he a rural Chinese farmer or a New Age guru. He was not a communist, a capitalist, or a social justice warrior. He was not a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or conservative. He was a first century Galilean Jew who spoke and lived like his contemporaries, but with an explosive message for all people in every time and every place, including you. And so as we continue to work through this gospel and wherever we're reading in the Bible, we're going to continue to, to dig into who this Jesus is. And we have to consider he is a first century Galilean. He's a first century Jew. He's living in that context. And, and out of that, look at the message he brought. 
And I hope you'll see that, that it's, it's just so significant to know that because we want to get this right. And if we don't get it right, we can miss some of the, the weight and the message of the text. So, now I've set you up. Jesus has just had this significant discourse or more of a speech through chapter 5 calling out the religious leaders of the day. He said, listen, if you're not careful, Moses, the one you look up to, the one you hold up, will be the one that actually condemn you. And here's the big idea for this morning. That Jesus is the true and better Moses. Ready? Let's go. John 6, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. That's not the first time we've heard that, is it? Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now I took uh, quite a bit of time to set us up with Moses there. Uh, Can you see, even in these sort of uh, editorial comments, this sort of narrative discussion, John is already starting to point us to Jesus being the true and better Moses. There's at least four ways in these four verses. First, Jesus is leading a crowd. Now, when you picture Moses in your minds, what do you see? Maybe Charlton Heston from the, the old Ten Commandments movie. But you, I would guess we don't consider Moses as, you know, the, the baby in the basket pulled from the river. We don't, when we first think of Moses, think about, you know, this boy who was raised the prince of Egypt. We don't think about 40 years wandering the desert before God called him to something. But we think of Moses as the one leading the crowd out of Egypt and towards the promised land. So he had a large crowd. Jesus is leading a large crowd. The crowds are coming to him. The second thing, the crowd is following Jesus because of the signs. Again, this isn't the first time John has told us that the people were coming to Jesus because of the things he was doing. The people were impressed. They'd seen sick people healed. They were following Jesus because they liked the signs he was doing. They saw him as a bit of a a roving healer, a miracle worker. Some of them were maybe starting to grasp that this could be the guy we've been waiting for. Well, what led the people to follow Moses? He and Aaron had all kinds of signs, including the ten plagues in Egypt to authenticate themselves and convince the people that God was with them and that Israel should follow them. The third thing, Jesus and his disciples went up the mountain. Matthew, who in his gospel is is really specifically writing to the Jewish people uh, more so than than John, uh, really emphasizes this this Moses-Jesus connection here. But right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, remember how that goes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus went up on the, on the mountain, the people came, and he began to teach them. Well, after leading the people out of Egypt, Moses and Joshua go up the mountain, and they get the law from God. And finally, the fourth thing in these first four verses, we're told that this event happens at the Passover. As I was starting to study this text and read it, and, and often when we, when we read the Bible, there, there's some of these notes that, that you're not totally sure if they should be there. Why should they be there? And I, and I was reading, I was like, why did, why did John say, oh, the Passover is at hand? Because they're not celebrating it, they're not doing this. Is this important? Well, the answer usually is, of course it's important if it's there. And so even if the other three things weren't there, John is highlighting for us that, that this was Passover time. So pay attention to that season. And if we don't consider Jesus, again, as a first century Galilean Jew, uh, raised in the Jewish system, uh, celebrating their festivals, we might miss the significance of this. 
The Passover was the pinnacle celebration for the Jews. They were celebrating and remembering Moses leading the people out of slavery and into the promised land. And so Jesus is stepping into that same thing. He's going to lead us out of a greater slavery from sin and into the promised land of eternal life with him. Now, in John's gospel, John actually highlights three Passover festivals for us. The first one we looked at a few chapters ago, and and Jesus cleansed the temple and described himself as the new temple. He's setting himself up there. The third Passover that John describes starts near the end of John chapter 11, and that's the week of Easter where Jesus is arrested and crucified. And now this one, we're about to see Jesus perform a miracle. And, uh, spoiler alert, the verses that follow describe him, describe Jesus as the bread of life, the provision of God. And we'll come back to this. So what we see in these first four verses is John is setting up Jesus walking in Moses' footsteps really clearly. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, this is Jesus, and he saw the large crowd that was coming towards him. He said to Philip, where should we buy some bread so we can feed these people? John throws this in. I appreciate that. Jesus said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, when when Moses left Egypt, it's estimated that he was leading the nation of Israel out somewhere between a million and two million people. And for 40 years, they wandered the desert. As you can imagine, feeding people was a big, big problem. There's no way they could have carried that many supplies with them from Egypt. They weren't staying in a place long enough to plant and harvest for themselves. And so we read that God gave them this manna from heaven, a a bread from heaven that they would collect every morning and it would be enough to feed everyone for the day. Anything stored would would go bad and so they would have to go the next day and again, put their hope and their trust in God's provision that he would provide bread for the next day. Jesus, similarly, looks at this crowd coming towards him. Likely it's not a million or two million strong, but it is a large crowd, we're told. And so he asks Philip, hey, what are we going to do about this? And now, much like the wine problem in chapter 2, remember we looked at, they were at the wedding, and and, uh, Jesus' mom comes and says, hey, they're out of wine. And even though we're not explicitly told this, Jesus' mama knows he's going to do something. Jesus knows he's going to do something there. And right here again, he knows what he's going to do. Jesus isn't worried. He's not wondering, how are we going to take care of this? He is testing Philip. Look at Philip's answer in verse 7. You know, 200 denarii worth of bread would would not be enough to give each of them a little. Philip goes into panic mode. Jesus, you're supposed to be in charge. How am I supposed to solve this thing? And he uses all his human logic to find a solution. He's saying eight months of wages wouldn't be enough to give everyone a bite or two. Here's the encouragement from Philip for you and me this morning. There's going to be times when our human way of thinking just isn't going to be enough. The problems are too big too great. Our logic may be solid, but it's not going to be enough. I think we're kind of globally in one of these moments right now, aren't we? And our problem is so often we just try to buckle down and fix it ourselves, try harder, think harder, work harder, but we, like Philip, forget who is with us. Jesus presents the question to Philip, again, not because he doesn't know what's going to happen, doesn't know what he's going to do, but because he's going to show Philip once again, there's no match for Jesus. Verse 8. One of his other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
It almost seems like, like Andrew's anticipating, this is going to be good. We're going to see something here. Here's a little bit of a lunch. But what's the point of this? He kind of says in that last comment, what are they for so many? Again, it's always easy for us, you know, 2,000 years removed, to look back at a story like this and be hard on the disciples. How could they not expect Jesus to do something amazing here? But how often do you and I do the exact same thing? How often do we look at our situation and think, well, all I've got is this little lunch. That's not enough. How many times do you and I need to see God work before we too stop doubting and, and, and trust that he'll come through for us again? I'm sure there's a number of how many times I'm not there yet, so I can't give you that number, but I'll let you know when I get there. Then, as we read, Jesus, like Moses, miraculously feeds the crowds. Verse 10, Jesus says, Have the people sit down. There's much grass in the place, so the men and the people sat down. There's about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. I love how John records this for us. Jesus takes the little boy's lunch. I, I would picture Jesus kind of giving, you know, taking the lunch from the boy, giving him a little wink and a nudge and say, watch this. Then he prays and he hands it out. And look how much they got. As much as they wanted. I love how one writer concludes, when Jesus supplies, it's never too little. He never runs out. Jesus can go above and beyond not only what we ask, but even what we think. As Paul writes in Ephesians 3, Jesus has never yet run into a problem that he can't solve. Everyone has as much as they wanted. And then Jesus has the disciples collect whatever was left over. Look at verse 12. When everyone had eaten their fill, Jesus told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves by those who had eaten. Later uh, in this chapter, we'll once again read the similar language of, of Jesus talking about the lost when he says, listen, this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus talking mission here. This is the will that, of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me. We'll see that later in verse 39. The, the picture for us is that Jesus doesn't waste, that nothing's going to be lost. If Jesus cares this much for extra bread, how much more does he care for every one of us that none would be lost? See, Jesus is the new and better Moses who miraculously provides food for the crowd in a way that no one could have expected or imagined. Let's keep reading verse 16. Then when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And they got in a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. 
The one thing uh, I didn't mention about this feeding miracle is it's one of the only miracles that's in all four Gospels. So we have this great kind of four-pronged approach to read this. And, and this story that follows it is also uh, common. So we can read from different Gospels and see uh, all the things that were happening. But if you remember, we're setting Jesus up as the true and better Moses. If you remember the Exodus story, when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, what happens right after they start to leave? Pharaoh changes his mind and comes after them. And the Israelites all of a sudden find themselves in between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. Do you remember what happened next? God told Moses, stretch out your staff across the sea. And then God divided the waters, the people walked across them. And when Pharaoh tried to follow, the army tried to follow, the waters collapsed back on them and the people were rescued. Well, here, Jesus sends his disciples across the sea without him. Again, the other, the other gospels say that Jesus sent them ahead. And we read in verse 18 that the waters that these experienced fishermen were, were traveling across were getting choppy, and they were struggling, so much so that it was the middle of the night, and they were only halfway across. This was a, a massive journey, miles long across the lake. And look at why the water is choppy in these verses, though. It says a strong wind was blowing or, or a gale swept down on them to make the water this rough. Well, if we flip back to Exodus chapter 14, look at what's described there. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind, a strong gale all night. And he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Lord parted the sea with a strong east wind, and now in the midst of a strong wind, Jesus strolls out onto the water as if he's walking down the sidewalk. Naturally, the guys in the boat were terrified. Probably you and I would be as well. But here's what they were doing. They had just witnessed this amazing feeding miracle, and now they were again witnessing the power of God. They were getting a glimpse of just who Jesus was, and they were seeing that he had a power beyond anything they could imagine, and they were terrified. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am here. Again, Matt Carter reminds us that there, there is a God with a power that our minds cannot fathom. And he is just, and he will someday use his power to right all wrongs and to judge sin. Yet through his son Jesus, he reaches out to each of us and says, you don't need to be afraid. If you believe in Jesus, you will receive him. There is no need to fear. In these verses we've just read, in these two actions, Jesus is identifying himself as the true and better Moses, the one that the whole Old Testament pointed to, the one that, that he would fulfill the entirety of the law. He feeds the people and he crosses the sea, both in ways that required divine intervention. And some of the people, they did start to make this connection, didn't they? Back in verse 15, we skipped it, but it looks like, or we read that they say, some of the people didn't just call Jesus a prophet. Hey, this is something amazing that's going on. But they said, hey, maybe this is the prophet. They seem to recognize that, that the one who is greater than Moses is here. And they would have been remembering Deuteronomy chapter 18, where, where Moses wrote that God would one day raise a prophet like himself. And that prophet, the prophet, would do mighty signs and wonders like Moses did, and even more. 
some of the people who had just had their bellies filled started to recognize that, that this Jesus might be the one they'd been waiting thousands of years for. And they'd hoped that just like Moses led the Israelites out of slavery and, in, and, and into the promised land, that Jesus might lead them out of Roman occupation. But look at how Jesus responds to those who are just starting to put the pieces together here. In verse 15, jumping back a little bit to verse 15. It says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him and force him to be a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus didn't come to revolt against Rome. Jesus didn't come just to feed bellies and just heal the sick. He didn't come to make the nation powerful again. He set his sights so much higher than that. Again, as one writer says, Jesus wasn't worried about the victory over Rome. He was after an even greater victory. He came to wage war against sin and suffering. He came to duel with death. They wanted to make Jesus king, but before he would wear a crown of gold, he chose to wear a crown of thorns. Before he would sit on the throne, Jesus would hang on a cross. There would be a crucifixion before his coronation. And Moses won a great victory, but it pales in victory, pales in comparison to the victory that Jesus won when he rose from the grave, triumphant over death and hell. So where does that leave you and I? Well, I think, again, we really need to consider how we come to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to bring us comfort Jesus didn't come just to put food on the table, to give sight to the blind, to heal the lame, to be our friend, to be our homeboy. Jesus came to overthrow Satan, sin, and death itself. He came to usher in a new kingdom, a new spiritual empire that would last forever. He came to answer all the questions of the Old Testament, to answer all the promises of God, to restore the relationship between God and humankind. Sometimes you and I only give Jesus a second thought when we need him to get us out of a jam. Sometimes we only give Jesus space to work in our lives if he promises not to say anything that offends us too much or makes us too uncomfortable. We want the kingdom, but we're not always too sure about the king. Because frankly, we like to be king or queen. But Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable he came to give us life, abundant life, new life, full life. And he didn't come to do that on our terms. But as creator and sustainer, he came to remind us of his terms. Because when we stand before Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we don't bring anything but ourselves. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for your word that was written 2,000 years ago, yet speaks so loudly to us today as well. I pray that as we continue to study that you would um, show us just all the things Jesus is doing, that we wouldn't get uh, part way there, that we wouldn't read verses like this and say, wait a minute, Jesus can put bread on my table too. That's great. I'm a little hungry. Jesus, come on but that we would see that, that Jesus had, had come for something so much greater than that. And yes, we see him heal. Yes, we see him feed. Yes, we'll even see him raise from the dead, but he came to, to 
not deal even with just physical lives, but with our spiritual lives, with our eternal life. God, we live in a, in a world that wants to, to not talk about that. Not talk about the life that is beyond what we can see or smell or touch or taste or feel. But there is so much more. And so I pray that you would continue to, to speak to us, that you would open our minds, that we would, we would hear your voice and, and follow your leading into this, this understanding that there is more to life than these 80 years that we've got here, but there's 80 billion more to be spent with you after. Jesus, thank you that you came to do this. Thank you that, that before you put on the crown, uh, you wore the thorns. Before you sat on the throne, you went to the cross. Thank you that by your right life, your righteous living, you were able to offer up your life for us and, and die on the cross for our sins, for all the ways that we still want to be king of our own lives. But then three days later, you conquered death itself and sin itself and have offered your life to us so that we can be known by you, we can be uh, adopted and grafted into the family of God, that we can be brought back into a right relationship with the Lord, and that you've given us the Holy Spirit to work these things out in our lives right now. May your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.